Each year on the morning of the 24th of August, I'd wake up in my childhood room in Kiev full of anticipation. I'd get out of bed, run up to my balcony that overlooked Institutska Street and look outside. For a bit, I'd watch the cars go by. People walk up and down the street and trees gently move in Kiev's summer breeze. A few meters down, I'd notice the police start cordoning off the part of the street closest to Kiev's central square Maidan for the big celebration. Ukraine's Independence Day. Together with my parents, I'd get ready and get out of the flat. We'd make a plan about how to get to a good place where we could watch the events unfold on our city's central street, Khrushchev, and make our way there. Kids, adults, grandparents, all in their best outfits would fill the streets around Maidan. Everyone would spend the day celebrating. I remember that I always found it amusing that our independence was just a year older than me. I'd turn 13 and Ukraine would celebrate its 14th Independence Day. I'd turn 20 and Ukraine would celebrate its 21st year of freedom. Now that I'm 31, Ukraine's independence is 32. But as Russia started bombing peaceful Ukrainian cities, occupying Ukrainian lands and killing our people, I started asking myself more questions about Ukraine's age. Was Ukraine really one year older than me? Or was there a whole history of independence that I simply did not know about? Yes, I knew about the Cossacks, the Zaporizhian siege, and anecdotally, a few things about our fight for freedom, both under the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. But as it turns out, there was more to Ukraine's history of independence than just that. I'd only sadly learn more about it when knowing our history would become a matter of survival for me. So I've decided for myself that I'd never call the 24th of August Ukraine's Independence Day again. From now on, I'd call it Ukraine's renewed Independence Day because it was the day Ukraine became free, not for the first time, but yet again. This is a special season of Ukrainian Spaces, a podcast elevating diverse Ukrainian voices and explaining Ukraine to the world. Ukraine regained its independence on August 24, 1991, following the dissolution of the Soviet Union, marking a pivotal moment in the nation's history after decades under oppressive Soviet rule. The declaration was overwhelmingly supported by a referendum, where over 90% of the Ukrainian population voted in favor of independence, from the east of the country to its west. It wasn't just the failed coup in Moscow that led to this historic event. The revolution on granite, which took place in 1990, represented a crucial turning point in the nation's journey towards breaking away from the Soviet Union. Thousands of students and activists gathered to protest against the centralized power of Moscow and to demand sovereignty for Ukraine. The movement played a crucial role in galvanizing public support and setting the stage for the formal declaration of Ukraine's independence in 1991. The revolution on granite remains a symbol of the nation's enduring spirit and determination to forge its own path. But was Russia ready to let go? And what consequences would the legacy of Russian colonialism have on Ukraine rebuilding itself again? Marichka, Stas, Maxim and I will tell you all about it. I don't actually remember anything about August 24th, 1991, when Ukraine regained independence from Russia. Maybe because my family was deeply confused about the empire collapsing around them. They were suspicious of news coming from inside the walls of a building they never trusted in the first place. 
The Ukrainian parliament maybe was a newly founded democratic institution, but it was still based at a Soviet-built headquarters of former Russia pocket legislator in faraway Kiev that my parents had never even visited. Things became real for our family several months later. On December 1st, 1991, my parents dressed me in several layers of warm clothing and we walked to a voting station. As a small kid, I wouldn't understand what are independence, democracy, or sovereignty, but I vividly remember the buzz of a shared excitement at a packed voting station. It was the first democratic vote my parents participated in. Our predominantly Russified city region voted 90.66% for the independence. When my dad left the voting booth, he looked a tad concerned. Do you really think Russians will allow us to have this that simple? He asked my mom. My mom just shrugged. I had no idea what he meant either. It would take me and the entire country many more years to realize that freedom never comes free. Freedom did indeed come at a price, as Maxim noted. Today, millions of Ukrainians have come to realize that. But was it worth it? And how did it feel for millions whose lives changed in a day? Here's Marichka's family's memories. People lived way better in the Soviet Union than after its collapse, a prevalent thought. I heard it too many times from foreigners, especially when discussing the independence of Ukraine and other countries. Honestly, my mother's family lived pretty well during the Soviet times. They bought expensive household appliances and furniture and traveled to buy clothes in Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia. My mother and her sister spent their summers near the sea in Crimea and Abkhazia, part of Georgia occupied by Russians now too. They never complained. In 1991, after the USSR collapsed, they lost all their savings, and of course, they struggled financially. The 1990s were tough, but for my mom and her family, achieving independence and freedom felt so right that they never questioned it. They never had any doubts. They identified themselves as Ukrainians and finally got an opportunity to live in their own country. The only thing my mother still regrets is that they didn't buy a car in the times with the Soviet troubles they saved. Now everything is lost. Everything else was worth it, just as it is now, when Ukrainians are fighting to be Ukrainians and to live in their country. Stuff like money and material wealth is less important. A couple of months back, I sat down to write an Instagram post about Ukraine's revolutionary spirit. Ukraine had witnessed so many revolutions, I had witnessed so many revolutions, that I simply had to tell others about them. To tell people that this drive to fight for freedom and fairness that many were seeing today was simply something that was part of our upbringing. Freedom did indeed, as Maxim says, and as history has shown, not come free. But there was one revolution that I always overlooked because I knew very little about it until a few years back. It was the revolution on granite led by the students right before Ukraine became independent again on the same central square that would become synonymous with Ukraine's spirit of resistance. The students who led this movement believed in a brighter future for their country. The revolution was a testament to the unwavering spirit of Ukrainian youth, their passion and their commitment to a democratic Ukraine free from oppressive Soviet rule. As I began to research and learn more about this revolution, I was deeply moved by the stories of courage, resilience and sacrifice. The students endured harsh conditions, faced intimidation and threats, yet they stood their ground, united in their cause. That's when I realized the importance of learning, acknowledging, and honoring all the chapters of Ukraine's history, big or small. 
Each revolution and each movement has shaped our nation's identity and defined our collective journey towards freedom and independence. Independent Ukraine is the only kind of Ukraine I've ever known. Everything before independence felt like history to me. Something from family stories and school books. Growing up in the late 90s and early 2000s, I never felt that Ukraine was quote-unquote a young country. Instead, I felt that, unlike every other generation of my family, I was lucky to be born after history, after Ukraine finally got its freedom. I guess I always took independence for granted, always assuming our struggle had finished in 1991 and that independent Ukraine will exist forever. Obviously, it all changed in 2014, when Ukraine faced an existential threat from Russia again. I never wanted to relive history, especially the history of Ukraine's struggle for freedom. But I guess history doesn't ask our permission to storm back into our lives and turn everything upside down, especially if the world has failed to learn lessons from its last great war. Why did Ukraine have to fight for its freedom so often? Why did Russia try to erase us over and over again? And why did the rest of the world ignore all the signs of Russian colonialism for such a long time? We got on a Zoom call to discuss this. Last episode, we spoke about Chernobyl and the way that it catalyzed the movement for freedom in Ukraine and reignited the spirit of resistance in thousands of Ukrainians across the country, which we've seen on so many occasions since. But now we're in 1991. Ukraine has become newly independent. For as long as many of us could remember, this was always called Independence Day. But really, it was renewed Independence Day for us. So I wanted to start by asking all of you, and whoever wants to go first, please feel free. Why was it renewed independence? And when was the first time that you realized that this was just the latest independence in Ukraine's history from the control and oppression of Russia? I think even uh, since we were little, there was uh, a bit of mythology because remember, we always had these uh, news reports every 24th of uh, August featuring a young Ukrainian who's uh, of the same age as Ukraine. You know, it was like a 10 year old Ukrainian or 20 year old Ukrainian. I think they would do it up until the genocide started. And there was even this internal mythology that it's a young nation, it's a young country that just happened to be uh, out of a debris of an empire, and it has to figure out who they are, what they are, what they stand for, what their future is. And I think as a child, I was also believing that as the rest of the country, because there was a lack of basic knowledge about where we come from and what that, what's our history? And the problem is that this is the direct result of colonialism that completely erases generation after generation the feeling, belonging that you are here and there were generations of people uh, of your ancestors living on the same land. And only when I start self-educating myself, I think I've realized that, no, this is not even the first time Ukraine formally declares independence, right? There was a time in 1918. There was not the first time that Ukraine has statehood. Ukrainians had statehood centuries before even when Russia became a thing. But this knowledge was stolen from us uh, to the point that uh, the majority of us believed that we're indeed something super new, super young, and there was nothing before us, just Russians, you know, bringing us up to 
civilization and teaching us how to be. Yeah. And I think what is this is our opportunity to talk about Russian colonialism in this episode because this was again our renewed attempt to free ourselves of that control. And I think what's important to note and connect with what Maxim is saying is that the way that Russian colonialism works is that as a tool, they tried and have tried for so many times in, in so many different contexts to erase the differentiation between Ukrainians and Russians in general. So to say that we're one people, we have one history, we're connected and we can never be disconnected and we can never, you know, Ukrainians can never be separate from Russians. And that is why they've justified a lot of what they've done in Ukraine and in other places as well. But particularly with history, it's been for me since the full scale invasion, really interesting to like peel back and look back at a lot of the information that I didn't know before. And I didn't, I, I stopped going to school in Ukraine when I was 13. So I think I also missed a lot of the information that maybe you guys have learned both in school and at university, like the period that Maxim mentioned, 1918, is so interesting and so fascinating and such a interesting part in Ukraine's history that I never, ever heard about before, to be honest. I mean, I've heard about it before the full-scale invasion, but I never really read about it or took much interest in it. And I was researching the history of the street that I grew up on, and I found out that in 1918, the Bolsheviks came to the left bank of Kiev when Ukraine declared independence in 1918 and started shooting from artillery onto the right bank and killed loads of people and destroyed loads of buildings in an attempt to erase us. I just think it's so crazy that I grew up on that street and I never knew about its history and about Ukraine's independence back then and about all the heroic attempts at keeping us independent from Russia when we had that opportunity. So I think this period of renewed independence in 1991 is really important to look at it through the context of other uh, periods as well. I also think that it's important to add that this idea that Ukraine is just very new government and country is very useful for specifically Russia and Russians because they created this myth about the uh, Kievan Rus and this like the right history of Russia, not Ukraine and not Kiev. So basically Ukraine is kind of young and new country, but the real history is behind the Russia not Ukraine, which is absolutely not true. And it's more easier for them just to support this myth and narrative around Russian history and not around Ukrainian history, of course. Yeah. And Stas, you spoke as well about only knowing independent Ukraine and feeling like everything before that was history. Do you feel differently yeah. now? Well, you know, I regarding what you said about like renewed independence, I think I had have a little bit like a different... I don't know, maybe a, a reverse realization when I was younger, because I was growing up in a family that, like, we had a lot of history books. My dad is a little bit like a history nerd, and so he would talk a lot about the Cossack times, the Kievan Rus, and I think I always, since my childhood, I always knew that Ukraine was pretty ancient, like, we, we weren't suddenly like a new nation, a new state in 1991. And for me, the weirdest realization was the different one. When I started to see that in the West, a lot of people treat Ukraine as this like super young nation. And for me, it was 
really weird because like my first question is well do you guys really th- believe that before 1991 there was no ukraine like there were no ukrainians and i, I don't know it just felt very weird to kind of interact with this point of view and realize that this is actually mainstream you know yeah and maybe that's why also you know when um, timothy snyder i think recorded those youtube videos of his classes where he spoke about like ukraine's history and ukraine as a nation and things like that and there was a lot of like ukrainians who ran to those youtube videos and were watching them and it became super popular and i think that's how he you know ukrainians were really really passionate about those courses that were available for free on youtube for everyone and i think that's because it was one of the first times that we heard someone from the west actually talk about the fact that our history didn't start in 1991 and that we didn't just start doing what we're doing and so i think it's just almost this like feeling of a moment where we felt like what we've been saying for a long time maybe was acknowledged in some way and there's obviously a lot still to do and maxim and i talked about this for the past however many seasons but ukrainians have been talking about a lot of the points around our long history of fighting against russia and our long history of wanting to be free that i hope i mean do you guys think we're finally being heard There's a long pause for everyone listening. People are thinking. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I really like felt when you told about this effect that Timothy Snyder's lectures had on Ukrainians. It was a very like precise moment of like, thank you. Like at least somebody from the outside is talking about it because in a lot of times Ukrainians felt like these radicals, nationalists maybe, uh, speaking about this like ancient history while like the media establishment, the academics were all speaking of Ukraine as this like, oh, yeah, 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 young developing nation. So it was really a a liberating, I think, moment for a lot of us. And maybe, Maxim, you can talk to this as well. And I think partially this was also caused because everyone was so excited about Russia after 1991 and nobody really cared about Ukraine. That has led to a lot of misconceptions and issues that we're experiencing right now and have experienced since 1991. And Maxim, you were talking earlier when we were preparing for the episode about, I called it this kind of naivety and positivity and whatever the West had towards Russia. But you said something slightly different. I disagree that it's uh, about being naive because all those decisions, especially in the beginning when Ukraine was forced into many international treaties to give up nuclear arms, to tie itself to Russia with uh, security guarantees and treaties and everything else with the pressure from the rest of the world community, I think it wasn't because the rest of the community was naive that Russia overnight became something else, that centuries of that oppression towards Ukrainians would just disappear. I think it came out of place of always treating Ukrainians and the rest of Eastern Europeans and the rest of people who suffered from Russian imperialism and colonialism as a second-class humans. And they would not just value our security, our lives, our future as much as it would value um, uh, Russians because Russia was an equal empire in their uh, views of these establishment circles. But I I think things have changed dramatically. And of course, 
part of the reason how colonial empire operates, it raises history, right? Literally destroys archives, rewrites history, hijacks the narratives. And Russia has been exceptionally successful at doing that. And it will take many years for people to learn the actual history. And some people do not even care about the history that much. However, I think what changed is that people felt that Ukraine and Ukrainians are not new because if people are sacrificing everything, in, including their lives, to stand up for their land, to stand up for their values, for their identity, it means that it's not something new. It means that people carry something ancient, something that they all feel maybe on even instinctive level. And this resistance cannot be brought overnight as well. So people, when people saw that resistance and they're seeing now on this fundamental level, they understand that this comes from really deep place. People would not do that if they were just, you know, 30 years independent, not realizing who they are. And I think that's where uh, things have changed dramatically. And that's where people understand probably what people, all Ukrainians say about themselves and what they ready to sacrifice is just much more important and much more ancient than what Russia is trying to tell the rest of the world. Yeah. When you were talking about, you know, all the treaties and all the things that happened after Ukraine became independent, I was thinking about, we've all heard this before many times. This is like the reason why we're doing this and have been doing a lot of our public facing work. But, you know, we've felt sometimes resistance to the concept that the Soviet Union was just part and parcel and continuation of the Russian colonial project. Because there's this misconception, yeah. obviously, that the Soviet Union is like everyone was free and equal and happy clappy and held hands and loved each other. But I think if you look at the specific period after Ukraine's renewed independence, and not just Ukraine's, as you said, other people colonized by Russia, you can't help but ask yourself a question. Why was it then, if Soviet Union wasn't the continuation of Russian colonial empire, why was it that Russia, after its fall, inherited the nuclear weapons and a lot of the other power tools in the arsenal of the Soviet Union? Why was it that we had to give ours up and they could still keep it if they're not the mm -hmm. ones who were in control? Like, why were they the ones who were in charge of negotiating the way that everything happened after 1991? if they weren't actually the ones controlling us for all this time since the Bolsheviks came and took over power. And so it's just quite interesting to look back at it now, right? And be like, to us, it seems so obvious. And I feel like to a lot of people who will be listening to this as well now, it will seem so obvious. But for a really long time, for, for a really, really long time since then, people completely overlooked it. I remember... Actually, I remembered the speech of George Bush in 1991 uh, when he made this very famous speech, Kiev Chicken, and about the like democracy in Russia and how they supported Gorbachev and everything. I remember one thing. He told that he knows the struggle of this country meant Russia, like not any other country, only Russia, like the hugest and the greatest one as the Soviet Union, like mother and everything, that he told that he understood the struggle of this country for democracy and freedom, and that the U.S. totally support them in uh, building democracy. But he never, like the only thing that he was afraid of 
uh, speaking about Ukraine, he was afraid of like Nazism and nationalism and dictatorship, where if Ukraine gets independence, it means that it can be like super nationalistic, you know, and like very like have dictatorship or something like this. And for me, it was so shocking because for us, for Ukrainians, like getting an independence, it was so important. And it was so important that Western community can support us in this because we're like fighting for democracy. We want to be free. We want to be independent. This is super amazing. It's all these values that they keep talking about. But the only thing that George Bush did those time, it was that the only uh, supporting democracy in Russia and like Russia everything good about people, but not for any other country who was a part of Soviet Union. Yeah. And meanwhile, whilst everyone was super positive about, you know, Russia, they were still keeping control of the newly independent states or trying to keep control. Empire doesn't let you go that quickly or that easily. Yeah, I like these memes um, that actually, you know, put in linear perspective the history of democracy in Russia and show that, uh, you know, on the all these multi-century history of Russia, there was like just a millisecond of democratic experiment. And the rest was of always tyranny, always empire, always autocracy. And then you can compare to actually very ancient democratic traditions within Ukraine. And that's why for Ukrainians, they're always super sensitive to restore freedom and restore democracy. And uh, even all those popular now liberal talks within Russia about democracy and freedom, they take place in the philosophical historical works that Ukrainian philosophers would write in the 16th or 17th centuries, like Rehori Skovorada is basically the founding father of Russian as well, you know, Russian liberalism and Russian tradition of free thinking. And now, you know, with for several centuries, Russians would claim that Rehori Skovarda was Russian, of course. But uh, when uh, Russians invaded, uh, full-scale invasion started, one of the things that they did, they bombed the museum, not even in the downtown, but somewhere in the countryside. And everybody in the West was so shocked. Why would they spend so much money and effort bombing, you know, some philosopher's museum somewhere in the countryside? But for Russians, they understand that these kind of bits and pieces of facts about where Ukrainian democratic traditions stand, how ancient those traditions are, is direct threat to that image, civilizational image that Russia still clings and tries to sell like, oh, Russia is superior. Russia knows best. Whether it's Russian opposition figures who would tell you that Russian version of democracy is superior to anything else that could happen to this place. Whether it's Putin who will tell you that Russian way of life and Russian empire is superior to anything that can happen in Russian neighborhood. Yeah. And I've heard this sometimes from people outside of Ukraine in Ukraine, but that like, if Russia didn't decide to make Ukraine free and others in 1991, nothing would have happened, right? Like if, if Russia didn't, didn't let go, then we would have forever stayed in the empire. And I just think like, it's so important what you were saying that actually the democratic tradition in Ukraine and the philosophy of freedom is not something that should be overlooked when we think about the reasons why Ukraine became independent and also the reasons why we're fighting today for our independence, right? It's still a colonial view if you say that, you know, it was only up to Russia to decide to let us go. We had nothing to do about it, that we're like these passive subjects that Russia does things to, agrees or disagrees. And 
unfortunately, we're paying a really massive price for it. But I really hope that foreigners who are listening to this, people from abroad, do try and look a little bit deeper into us as people who also propelled our own freedom and have been doing that for a very long time as a nation. And so, yeah, I think it's just important to keep um, mentioning that and asking people to look a little bit deeper into our history beyond 1991. But yet it's important for us to look at 1991 as well and the period that happened after that. So I wanted to ask maybe, uh, Stas, we keep talking about sort of the price for freedom that Ukrainians have had to pay on many occasions. But what does that actually mean to you? And has that changed since February of 2022 or not? I think it relates a lot to what you were saying about this idea that Russia somehow gifted us independence in 1991. I think because there was no war in 91, a lot of people assumed that it was, it was just an accident or like nobody really struggled for independence. So it doesn't like it's not valued in the same way. And even within Ukraine, I think some people were hesitant about independence in a way that did we really struggle for it? There was a lot of doubt, I think. But definitely since 2022, that question has been closed. I hope forever because people, first of all, people saw how much Ukrainians are willing to give for independence. But also there was a lot of historical revisionism or maybe just looking at the same history facts that we already knew with a different angle. Because again, in 1919, a lot of stuff could have been different if, for example, there was no struggle for independence. If Ukrainians were not fighting for independence, we would just be, you know, incorporated into the Soviet Union as just part of Russia. There wouldn't even be this Ukrainian socialistic republic or whatever. And, and I think that all these building blocks that actually demonstrate how Ukrainians have been given a lot of things in exchange for independence, this has become more illustrative after 2022. Yeah. Marichka? It's the same question. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to hear what you all thought about essentially this whole conversation that we started this with, which is that Ukrainians have had to pay a lot for our freedom and we keep doing that today and that price keeps changing i guess you know i think that with the beginning of the full scale and actually even earlier since 2014 when russia invaded first time and occupied crimea and parts of eastern ukraine i think that ukrainians they started to realize that all the history that we have that we had with russia was very problematic with us. And we began this uh, decolonization process. Not all of us, of course, it was not that obvious because we kept kept speaking Russian with our families and friends, you know, and we didn't realize that much how deep these roots with Russian colonialism and imperialism are, and they are so problematic for us. So I think that we began this way of decolonization for us. And the beginning of the full-scale invasion, it's kind of the second step or the, the second part of it, I think. And it's about not only realization of renewed independence of Ukraine and our history and, you know, the richness of our country and culture, 
but it's also about realizing of who we are, actually. And I think that this is why we keep telling that this is existential war for Ukrainians, because it's not about lands and it's not only about our homes and family. It's also about the right to exist and exist only as Ukrainians and exist as Ukrainian country. And it's really important for us. So I think it's kind of part of the realization of everything, of who we are, of who we should be, of in which country do we want to live? It's all about this, the same process. You know, I come from the family where some of the family members were taken away, disappeared in uh, um, in Russian repressions. But in the family, you know, was deeply traumatized by this. So we never discussed much of the politics or anything. But I remember when I was a little kid and the independence, renewed independence came, uh, lots of my grandparents were really skeptical about it. And they would like say stuff, well, that's not going to be good. Nothing will good will come out of it. And not that much, not because they were like, you know, fervent communists and they loved Russia, but there was something of a huge skepticism. And only later I realized that what they feared is that as long as Russia is out there as an empire, there is always be a terrible price to pay for being free. And they weren't naive realizing that this independence and means like the end of, you know, maybe this uh, oppressed but relatively peaceful existence. If you want to be unapologetically free, you have to pay a price for it. And they knew that this price will come sooner or later. So... I think that's kind of a depressing thing to realize, but also a good warning for everyone else who watches Ukraine that for better or worse, freedom is not free and there is always price to pay. But I think this price exponentially increases when you start ignoring this whatsoever and taking freedom and democracy as a privilege or something that is there. You don't have to do anything for it to survive. And I think this is could be a good telling story for the rest. The sooner you become aware of it, the lesser the price you personally will pay for staying free in this world. I think right now it's very similar situation with peaceful agreement with Russia. The same thing that you, Maxim, told to live in some kind of relationships with Russia that our grandparents thought that it could be better than to be at war or independent because they always would like to have some influence on us. Right now, when a lot of people abroad telling that Ukraine should make some uh, peaceful agreement with Russia so we can stop war, killing people, we can stop all these deaths and tragedies. But for us, it means all the same. It's still the same Russia. It's still the same Russian empire. It's still the same Russia who wants to destroy Ukraine and Ukrainians and doesn't want us to be free. So it means that if we have this peaceful agreement now, it means that in five, seven, maybe 10 years, they'll do it again. But only they'd like to have Kiev, for example, or maybe next it's going to be Lviv. And step by step, they want to be us part of Russia and never independent Ukraine or even some kind of Ukraine. It's George Bush uh, speech all over again. And I think once again, people who demand those peace uh, negotiations or compromises, I don't think again that it's naive. I think they just don't value Ukrainian lives and they think, okay. Yeah. And 
I think in the next episodes, we'll talk a lot more about the rest of Ukraine's modern history, I guess, not just modern history, like our memories. And we'll talk about culture and language and school and how we became the Ukrainians that we are today through all of that. But I think for the sake of this period, the immediate after 1991 period, it goes back to what I think both Marichka and Maxim said, which is that like back then our independence, our renewed freedom was done in a way that and people in general and the West didn't want to piss off Russia too much. So it wasn't like a radical break from the empire, right? It was still a very gentle independence that allowed Russia to keep its awful tentacles of control within our country. Maxim, what was that fact you said that Russia had to approve? Yeah, I think people are still think that I'm crazy mentioning that up until 2014, unofficially, the positions within the Ukrainian government of foreign minister, defense minister and interior minister had to be run by Moscow before approved. Of course, it wasn't an official policy, but that's how things were. And people find it bonkers, crazy that that would happen. But for Russians and for Ukrainian political elites, that was just the reality. But I, I just remember my childhood memory, and I was reminded the other day of the clip on the internet of uh, this uh, famous Ukrainian music festival, Chervonoruta, which is like massive uh, music festival that would travel different places in Ukraine uh, with the start of the new independence. And I remember um, a clip from 1995 when Chervonoruta was in Crimea in, in Sevastopol. And there was a Ukrainian young singer, Eitravchuk, who was voguing on the stage, being unapologetically queer and, you know, cool and young. And I was watching that as a kid, as a queer kid. I was just, you know, it was something mind-blowing for me because, I mean, of course, I wasn't like as educated, but I knew that the past would never, Russian past would never allow anything like that happen in public any freedom of expression like that would not be tolerated by the empire which is still very patriarchal and homophobic but that it was happening in independent ukraine in 1995 because that's what ukraine stood for back then and i think this kind of memory it was nice to re-remember that these are the things that ukraine stood back then already even on such sentimental levels as culture and entertainment and, and pop music. Yeah. Despite the control and oppression and, as I called it, Russia's colonial tentacles that continued to, I don't know, control us in a way, we spoke about this and we'll keep talking about this and mentioning this in every episode and explaining a little bit more and bringing specific examples. But this spirit of resistance that comes out in so many different ways and in so many different as you said, culture, literature, music, politics, activism, whatever it is, they have been coming to the forefront despite this control and will keep doing that. And that's what we're seeing today, that it's obviously horrific and terrible and tragic what's happening, but it's not new, a lot of these acts of defiance that Ukrainians have been showing to the rest of the world. And the more someone tries to control you and oppress you, the more you rebel and fight back for your freedom. This was the time when we took our first steps, learned our first words, and read our first books. A pivotal time for us, but also for Ukraine. 
There's no doubt that with Ukraine's renewed independence came a lot of questions that we as a nation still had to answer for ourselves. But because 1991 wasn't just a single moment of triumph, but the culmination of years of struggle and resilience, we had our history that we were yet to discover to help us. Some of us realized that before others did. But today, we are reminded that to really understand Ukraine, we need to delve into its rich past beyond 1991 to feel the depth of its spirit. Only then can we grasp the true essence of our nation and its people and decolonize conversations about Ukraine. <laughs>